Hello there, my name is Jenny Vasquez Newsom, and I am the guest host of season two of Mission Megaphone, a podcast production of Growth Network Podcast. In this season of Mission Megaphone, we are amplifying the overlooked leadership experiences and expertise of leaders of color. These conversations will challenge traditional definitions of leadership, disrupting the status quo by centering the skill, ingenuity, and capabilities of impactful BIPOC-identifying leaders from across industries. And I am super excited for my guest today, Kevin Henry, who is the Senior Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Southern California's Viterbi School of Engineering. And I have to say, for all those listening, Kevin and I go way back, so this should be a real good conversation. Uh, we're going to dig right in, but I'm so excited to have you. It is so good to be here. Yes. And we do go way back. And so <laughs> we have a lot to discuss, but it is so good to be here. And thank you for having me. I'm hoping that this is going to be a great conversation and we're going to be able to share a lot of good insight into leadership. Absolutely. I believe it. I'd love to just start pretty broadly. Tell us a little bit more about what you do and really thinking about that as defined as professionally, but then also can be much broader than that. What do you do? Yeah. So, you know, in my role as Senior Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, I focus primarily on the student side of DEI efforts and initiatives. And so I've worked at USC for a very long time, and I've worked at the School of Viterbi, School of Engineering for a long time as well. And so what's happened is, you know, being there for so long, it's allowed me to really kind of see diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives grow from what was a grassroots operation uh, when I first started back in 2006 in Viterbi to now. And so in this new role, um, I'm really kind of there to help infuse DEI and the DEI narrative into everything that we do within Viterbi. You know, in the past, diversity initiatives tend to be relegated to one place or one person or one office. And so in my new role, it's it's kind of there to, to make sure that it's spread throughout the school and everything that the students do and that we're making sure that we're looking at it through that lens on our efforts at Viterbi. So that's kind of what I do on the work side. And yeah, <laughs> I've been doing it for a while too. So the journey, I know. So let's actually start there. What is your origin story? like? Who is Kevin? How did you get here? What what has been kind of the foundational experiences of your life that tracked you this way? Yeah, this is a really good story. Um, you know, really interesting to kind of sit and think about, like, who am I and how did I get here? And, and what are some of the, the themes that have presented themselves to kind of pull me in this direction and get me to this point? When I look back, I think it started for me um, as an undergrad back at UC Santa Barbara, and I started in 1996. And I think my story regarding leadership and DEI and, and working in that area started in around 97, 98. I was a sophomore at UC Santa Barbara. I took on a leadership position at the only African-American male student organization at UC Santa Barbara. I was kind of voluntold that I was going to do this president position. Um, I wasn't ready, but people around me saw something that in me that I didn't see in myself. And so I was really highly encouraged to take on the leadership role of this organization uh, known as 100 Black College Men. And I did. And so for those that may not realize, you know, 97, 98 was around the time that Prop 209 was around and being talked about. And for those that don't know what Prop 209 was, it really 
was a measure on the ballot to eradicate affirmative action across the board, especially in the college admission process. And so um, this is something that we've seen has really hurt diversity numbers across the board in California. And so we became radical and we were fighting this initiative and making sure that the information was out there and people knew how to vote on it. It ended up passing. And so what then ended up happening was the universities saw a way to use us as student organizations to do the recruitment for them, the diversity recruitment for them. And so while they couldn't do it, we could. And so immediately, you know, I'm a sophomore in college and now I'm traveling down to LA from Santa Barbara to inner city high schools, talking to black and brown students about what it meant to go to college, what that experience was like and why it was so important. And so that couple of years, I was traveling up and down the coast, California, uh, all throughout California, uh, the Bay to LA passing that message on. And then we kind of culminated that with an in-person program. We bust over 200 students to Santa Barbara. We got funding from the university, funding from the Office of Admission. As a student organization, they could fund us. And we brought them to campus for four days and we immersed them into the college experience. And so that was kind of how I got into this and found my passion and really dove headfirst into DEI work and, and saw the importance of it. And so that was really, really early on. I was a kid doing these really, really big initiatives and programs and really kind of put myself in that environment. And then after that, you know, I graduated and I started working in student affairs at UC Santa Barbara in the housing department and. Um, even then, I, I helped manage the African-American interest floor and the residence halls that it resided within. And so I was kind of over that whole residence hall and I saw a theme there. There's certain points where you start to see, okay, you know, diversity is something that keeps showing up in my life in various ways, whether I ask for it or not, I'm being called in that direction. And so I just kind of followed that and, and leaned into it. Thank you for sharing that story, because I think it shows that some of those like early experiences that weren't maybe thrust into or didn't ask for end up like actually designing our trajectory. Like, and, and then you in those moments are supporting the trajectory of others well. So I, I appreciate that story. So true. So thinking about your journey and even thinking about in the last few years at Viterbi, really seeing how you've experienced the work of DEI in an institution and, and now kind of where it's maybe embedded or kind of structural versus what you saw in the beginning. How would you define leadership in your experiences, really thinking back to those early foundational experiences in college through to now being embedded as a structural leader within DEI at, at a university? How would you define leadership? Yeah. It's a really good question. You know, when you look at leadership, it takes some time for each of us to understand what leadership means for us, but what does it mean externally as well? And I think my experiences throughout the years have kind of led me to a place where I feel like I understand leadership at this point in time in my life, but I also allow room for it to grow because I, I think it's, it's something that should be able to evolve and grow and isn't necessarily static. Like you never really get there. You're always kind of working to be a better version of, but I think these are some qualities that really align with what I think makes a great leader. And the first is just the ability to, to hear and pay attention to things that are not being said in those moments. Oftentimes, you know, 
that we're in spaces where we're listening, there's a lot being said that is nonverbal. And so that ability to tap into those nonverbal cues, I, I think are a huge component of what it means to be a leader. But then also, you know, as you're hearing the ability to also listen without trying to formulate a response. And I think this is a huge factor in, in great leadership, being able to really just sit with what's being presented to you or being told to you or in a space where you're not trying to think about the next thing that you're going to say or how you're going to answer that. And that way you can be present. Um, I think that allows for, for leaders to really, really be present. I think a good leader always has the end goal in mind, whether it be the vision, the mission, whatever it is of your organization, of your work environment they always have that at the forefront of their mind and they're able to bring the group back to alignment when necessary based off of that. And so helping to refocus the group with the end goal in mind. I think that also helps because oftentimes, as we all know, there's more than one path to get to an, an end goal or to the end. There could be infinite amounts of paths. And so I think a good leader knows how and when to pivot. I think, you know, rigidity within the workplace or within organizations never works. The ability to kind of take life as it's happening, pivot, you can still get to the end goal and people that you're working with, they'll appreciate that because there's ways in which you can kind of move around things that pop up in our everyday lives. I think also just kind of the age old being able to lead by example. I think any leader that is able to get in and do exactly what they're asking of others is going to always stand out. And there's, there's a line in a, in a poem. One of my favorite poems is, uh, if by Rudy R. Kipling, and it says, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with Kings, nor lose the common touch. And that always kind of rings in my ear. When I think about leadership, you know, the ability to, to take on a leadership role, but not get lost within it and not become so ego driven that consumes you because then you've completely lost. That's right. I love that. I, thank you for sharing that with that imagery of the, the poem, because I think that's what so often happens is that, you know, when we think about leaders or even folks that have been in leadership positions and the ego takes over a bit. And so then that doesn't allow space to listen for what's not said or, you know, really pivot and shift because you kind of think you have all the answers when that's not the case for anyone. There's no way. True. So yeah. true. So how do you really thinking about that? How do you actually like exercise it? So in your role, in the day to day, but if anyone listening is like, okay, that, yes, that, that sounds like how I want to lead. What does that actually look like for you? For me, I had to really sit with myself and think about what type of leader I am currently and what type of leader I want to be. As I mentioned before, there's always some place to go and get to. And so first I had to sit to where I currently was and what type of leader I am. And one of those things is, you know, I, I've pride myself on being a, a really good active listener. And I think, you know, just my time working in admission and recruitment and those areas of my life where I'm working with students and I'm working with parents that are asking questions, but they really want to know something else. And so it really kind of honed my skill in like listening, as I mentioned before, listening to the things that aren't being said and being able to really hear the emotional place that someone is communicating from as well is so important. And so I, I pride myself on being able to do that within my day to day. The other thing that I really going into this role, I really wanted to make sure I did was create a psychologically safe 
environment. I think that oftentimes when we think about work, it isn't the most psychologically safe place for most people. It's high anxiety. There's high stress. There's this, this feelings of possibly being reprimanded for doing something wrong. And so you're on alert. You're always trying to, you know, make sure that your bases are covered and every, in, in my opinion, that doesn't produce the best work. Mm-hmm. It produces work that is riddled with stress and the best innovation and the best ideas and the best thoughts don't come out of that type of work environment. Mm-hmm. You're really kind of working to get something done and to stay off the radar. You know, immediately I wanted to be the type of leader that created a psychologically safe environment for us to explore, which meant the the ability to fail. You know, failure is such a missed opportunity in the work environment and in leadership. I think failure is so important to anything, any work that you do, any organization, any work environment, any group, you have to be allowed to fail because, you know, as, as much as you succeed and as much as learn through success, more is learned through failure. I mean, there's more growth, there's more evolution, uh, and there's just more that can come from failure. And so providing a space where you can fail, where you can throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks and be supported in doing so is, is kind of how I approach every single day. And not just saying that, because I oftentimes you can put this into words and you can write it down and it can be a part of your, your mission and vision of your group. But how do you model that? You know, are you actually modeling that? Do your, do people feel comfortable coming to you with their failures and how do you respond to that? And so I, I sat with that for a long time and said, you know, with failures, we're going to laugh at it and we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about the different opportunities that are in front of us. And, you know, we're going to create a space where we can say, oh, this isn't working. We need to, you know, we need to make a, an adjustment and we're going to adjust and we're going to celebrate the failures with the same energy that we celebrate the success. So many gems. Exactly. I'm like snapping my my fingers because, you know, I think if we're not failing, then we're definitely staying in the status quo. I would also agree that it's uncommon to be in environments that are psychologically safe professionally. I don't know. I mean, I do know why, uh, but I do think it's tied to the outsized consequences of failure or the outsized, like, reactions when you say, oh, I don't know everything or I don't know how to do this. It just, it, the consequences are too big and it doesn't allow space to actually lead, actually shift, actually change, try new things, innovate. All We're, we're limiting ourselves. So yes. <laughs> yes, totally. I agree. <laughs> and I have to name, you know, for, for those listening again, Kevin and I go way back and yes. I have to double tap on his ability to actively listen, your ability to, I I saw it in action when we work together. Commonly, anyone in the organization would go to Kevin, no matter what the challenge was, no matter what is going on, um, folks would just go to you. And it's true. I think that was such a leadership moment, a leadership activity Mm -hmm. that you didn't have to have a particular title or even be involved in a particular group or whatnot, but just creating space for others, regardless of the connection. I just had to uplift that because it, oh. you were you were that for me and you were that for so many. So that I, I absolutely agree that as, as leaders, how can we channel that? Because it makes all the difference. So thank you. Thank you so much. So maybe a hard question. 
what have you experienced in your work environments that promote this approach of leadership that really kind of foster that and allow it? And then also how, what have you experienced that kind of inhibit that, that, that make that hard? Because I do think it is hard. Yeah. What would you say? Yeah. When I think about like what promoted that leadership or helped foster that leadership within me, I, I immediately go back to the work environment. But also when you, you know, when I think kind of larger, like I think of any like organization that I've been a part of or am currently a part of or anything that I've, I've kind of done in the group setting, I think there are four types of personalities or people that you can report to or that, you know, or have that, that upper level role. And that's either a boss, a manager, a supervisor, or a leader. And I think you can find one of those four types of personalities in any organization that you're a part of, or that you're working with or at work. And as I kind of go through them, I think you're going to all, everybody will realize like, yeah, I've probably experienced each one of those. Um, I think when it comes to bosses, they're very ego driven. They are the boss and they're going to show up with their ego first. They probably are suffering from extreme imposter syndrome. And so they're not people centered. They don't care about the human capital. It's about the bottom line and it's about, you know, how they're going to look externally. And so regardless of who is hurt, run over in the process, they are the boss and their name is on it. And very toxic, you know, and we've all kind of experienced that type of, I don't even want to call that leadership because it's not leadership, yeah. but we've all experienced that type of, of person in charge of us or a situation or a group. I think when it comes to managers, managers are more focused on the work. And so they're just managing the work. If there aren't any problems, you probably won't see them too much. They really are not going to, you know, be too hands-on. If they are, they may step in. They're not very concerned with the people, the human capital or the people that are involved in the work. It's just about the work and getting things done and making sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and moving the processes and procedures along. They're managing it. I think the supervisor, you're kind of getting to that point where they understand the people that are behind the work. They are more, a little bit more hands-on and engaged in the strategy of it. And, you know, this is kind of where I think a lot of, of us have had supervisors. You know, there, there are some good qualities there. Um, I think that they're able to really kind of connect with the people, understand what's going on. But there can be some ego in there as well. I think you're going to get a little bit of the boss, a little bit of the manager. So supervisors is kind of a large expanse of what can happen within that, that type of personality or person. I think leaders are rare. I think when you get a leader that you are working for or within your organization, one, they're going to hold the mission and vision of the organization at all times. They're going to create that psychologically safe environment for everyone within it to bring their most authentic self to work, to the organization and feel supported and safe in doing that. They're going to always have a people first approach. They're going to create that place where you matter most because the more that you are taken care of and feels, you know, supported, the best work is going to come out of you from that. And they're going to lead, like I said, they're going to lead by example. And so those are the places and the people that I think inspire. They inspire change. They inspire growth. Those are the people that, you know, people cry when they leave because they've been in such a healthy work environment. 
And so having experienced, I think, all four of those in my life, they, they've shown me the type of leader I didn't want to be and the type of leader I wanted to be. And so that, for me, that kind of promoted the leadership because I was able to see those different personalities at play and how to steer away from that. Um, now, granted, I'm human. So there's times I may, you know, fall a little bit more one way, but I'm able to pull myself out very, very quickly because I'm aware of it. And that awareness is, is really what that, that has given me. And then, you know, to answer the other part, you know, the parts that have inhibited the leadership, it's the bosses and the managers. Mm -hmm. And with that comes the politics, because mm. it'll also instill that imposter syndrome within you, mm. that you're not good enough for this space, that you're not supposed to do the job you're doing. And so you, you take less than what you're worth and you, you start to tell yourself, well, I'm just happy to have a job. Or I'm just happy to be here. And I just need to put my head down and just do it. And that, is, that isn't it. That's not it. You know, that's a form of, of, of boxing you in and keeping you static and stagnant. I've never heard that like distinction between bosses, managers, supervisors, and leaders. And that really has struck because that's so true. You know, we think that of them as like titles or the ways we kind of, you know, label folks in positions, but there actually is a difference and and to really distinguish what leadership is versus all those other things yeah that's a, a, hopefully a point of reflection for a lot of folks of thinking about you know well how do i lead when i'm trying to be a leader versus yeah sure i, I have a team etc and so forth i'm just what's the difference i want to come back though to that piece that you just said around how bosses and managers can inhibit you and you know because it resonates with me as well i think as i've talked with a lot of folks that same experience of like almost feeling like an imposter feeling boxed in feeling really inhibited what yeah. do you do to kind of navigate that yeah yeah that's a really good question and it's one that i've i've had to think about a lot over the years in, in the various roles that I've been in, you know, for first off, for me, like the, the politics and the games of the political games that you kind of see happen within a workspace or an organization, I have such a low tolerance for that stuff um, because it is so, it gets us so off track from what the work is. And, you know, the, the deeper you dive into it, the more that I, <laughs> it can just really kind of take you way off track and in a different direction. And so for me, I think one of the ways that I, I deal with that is, you know, there was a time where I spent a pretty big, large chunk of my professional experience working in a, I would say a, a toxic environment. And, you know, being in that environment, at times I felt trapped and I felt boxed in and I felt like I was, you know, the imposter syndrome was always present. The inner saboteur was there saying, you're not good enough to leave. You know, you're just barely, you know, surviving here and it's going to be worse if you leave. And so you start to tell you, yourself these things that keep you in those positions. And what I had to do was really kind of think about what I've done, what I've accomplished, surround myself with people within that space that I trusted, people like yourself that saw me differently. And that could pour into me 
in a way that counterbalanced or counteracted some of those negative thoughts that were there or some of those negative feelings or, or politics that we're immersed within. You know, being being around good, positive coworkers, I think was was huge in some way, and in a way helped me kind of break out of that. But ultimately, I had to really think about how successful have you been with this toxic boss or with this toxic manager? How have you been able to get your job done and, and working with them and working around them at times? Like that mentally is draining yeah. and, it, and it is not advised to stay in in any way, shape or form. But if you are in it and you are being successful in it, that is a, that is a testament to you as a leader, because you have, have been presented with a really horrible situation with some really difficult things to navigate and maneuver around, and you've been able to do it. Mm -hmm. And so once I started to lean into that and say, wait a minute, you know, I've been able to really accomplish a lot of good stuff. Now I could have accomplished more had I been in a, in a better place, but I've got a lot done with this horrible boss or this horrible manager or this non-attentive supervisor. And that's me. You almost have to allow yourself to, to sit with that. Like I did that. And that for me was, was my ability to say, I don't have to stay in this. I can take this somewhere else and be great. And if, if it's bad when I leave, cause we're often scared that we're going to leave a bad situation to another bad situation, right. then leave that situation. You know, just as right. two, two humans are not the same, two situations are never going to be the same. Mm -hmm. You control your narrative mm. at all times, mm -hmm. at all times is, is something that I really had to lean into and it really felt like, yeah, I do. And so it gave me the power to kind of step out on faith and do what I needed to do for me. And it never backfired. It never backfired. That's it. That's right. I always think it, like systems are powerful. They are, but we're not powerless and we have agency even in the really toxic systems that there is, we hold a lot of value. And when we can like reconnect with that, uh, pff, bye, you know? Yep. yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, true. I love that. I love that. Thank you for, for sharing that uh, so candidly. When kind of thinking about all of this, all this conversation around leadership and what we see in our current narratives around leadership, there's like authentic leadership, there's empathetic leadership. There are a lot of ways to look at leadership uh, and it's been debated for centuries. What do you think a common misperception or misconception even today that, that folks may have about leadership? Like, what do, you, what do you still see that doesn't align for you? I think one of the common misconceptions that I see often is that leaders are going to have all of the answers and that they're going to know everything within the space that they lead. And that's not true. <laughs> you know, it's so not true. I think more often than not, leaders are, are more comfortable not knowing the answers and more honest with not knowing the answers because they trust their team that we have good people working in this space, working in this organization to figure it out. And the, in, in the process of discovery is truly true leadership. I think any leader that steps into a space and, and is leading by saying, I have all the answers and this is how we're going to do it has already failed. You're not really leading. You're actually more of a boss <laughs> where I think that's a big misconception when you walk into a space and 
initially those within that space that um, are under your leadership, they may be taken aback by the fact that you don't have the answers. And you may say, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this. Let's sit with it for a while. Let's, let's think about this. I don't know. Um, there's so much power in I don't know, even just in the space, because then those that are in the space feel comfortable to not know as well. Um, and I find, especially within workspaces, no one ever wants to not know. Sometimes people will lie. They'll say, you know, even when they don't know, they'll just continuously make up something and they'll talk end on end, but they'll fill the space with words just so that they don't have to say, I don't know. When there's just to say, I don't know, it's so powerful because now you've created a playing field where you can discover and find out and inform and learn. And so I think that's, that's a big misconception, I think, within leadership. The other, I think, is that as a leader, anyone that's going into leadership or taking on a leadership role, you have to understand that you probably won't be acknowledged for being a great leader. Acknowledgement isn't something that's going to be there. So you're going to have to figure out how to gauge that for yourself mm. without external validation. That's probably never going to come. Uh, being a great leader, you have to figure out what your metrics are uh, based off of what you're leading. Are the people happy? Are you thriving? Are people safe? Do they come to you? Can they talk to you? I think those are, for me, those are my metrics in being a good leader. It's not necessarily having the answers. It's, is the environment healthy? I think that that just makes me recall your conversation around taking the ego out of it. We're not looking for external validation. You shouldn't be. If you are, then that's probably a sign of something else motivating you. And then being able to say, I don't know, yeah. is like, a, you know, taking the air out of the ego uh, a bit to actually lead, to actually move towards something. Um, and, and that's tricky. Have you ever had experiences where there's a bit of tension with that, like you're, you're expected to know, or, you know, your team is looking to you to know, or I, I still find this like rub between like, this is reality, but we don't, we shouldn't know everything. We don't know everything. And that's how they lead. And yet we still have these expectations of leaders to like know everything, to give us direction, to tell us what to do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> almost weekly. <laughs> I feel like almost weekly where I'm having, I'm in that same position where you know, something has come up and it's like, you know, I really don't know how we're going to navigate this or how we're going to move through this. And I, I do feel that rub where, you know, those eyes are looking at you like, like, come on, dude, like you're supposed to know we're coming to you because we need you to know. What I found for me that helps in those instances is talking a plan out with them in that moment, not saying, I don't know. And I'm sorry. I just, I don't know. That leaves too much anxiety for everybody. But what I find I usually will do is I'll say, I don't know. And I don't know how this is going to move forward, but this is what we're going to do now. Let's start thinking about how we can pull this information together. So if this happens, we're ready for this. And then if that doesn't happen, maybe let's do this. So as a team, we can pull together this way. So we'll be ready for that. And I, I always kind of put it back on them that, yeah, we're going to do this together. And we're going to figure out a way to own power within the situation so that things aren't just happening to us. They're happening with us. And I, I think oftentimes in certain spaces, people are used to things happening to them without their voice, without their permission, and they just have to roll with the punches. But I'm like, no, let's be active participants in this. Mm -hmm. This is going to happen with us. So if, if this comes externally, we're ready internally 
to navigate that this way. We're going to drive the narrative in every situation based off of our preparedness. And so that's kind of how I turn things around in those instances. Like, okay, we do have some power here. We're never powerless. So let's own what we have power over and then let's be prepared. Because I feel like, you know, that age old saying preparation and opportunity meet, that's what they call it, luck. So I think the more that you're prepared, it's, it's more about being able to, to drive the narrative in the direction you want it to go in. And so that's kind of what I do in those spaces. But I do feel that rub. There is a rub where you don't have the answer. And usually the reason you don't have it is because there's something external that's going on above you that you need to maybe wait for or you need you know permission to even talk about at that moment. But I try to bring it back to the team level and let's let's do what we can at this level to be ready for whatever comes externally. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for talking through that because it's complex. Like there's complexity to this. It's hard to navigate. So I love that approach that you take to be able to still handle those situations and those expectations and, and then shift into, we could still lead through this differently. I don't have to tell you answers and whatnot. When thinking about kind of all of this conversation around what I call like untapped leadership potential and reflecting on your own experiences and what may be and what is often untapped within us and within others when we're thinking about leadership, what are one or two things that you would want someone listening to this to like do or consider or think about as a result, regardless of how they identify anybody? Yeah, I'm actually going to take this back to one of the first questions you asked me about my origin story. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should sit down and, and do that first. Think about who are you? How did you get to today? And in in doing that, you know, it may be helpful to write down some bullets or just kind of jot down some of the trajectory. But in doing that, look for alignment and look for themes within your story. And you don't know this, but you actually did this for me. Gosh, you know, we lost three years in the pandemic, so I can't even tell you how many years ago this was. But you actually did this for me. I had made a jump out of one position into another, you know, where I was kind of out of diversity and and just in a whole different area and trying something new. And then this other opportunity came up to come back to diversity work. And I had a conversation with you and you said, you know, you are good at this work. Like, you know, this work like the back of your hand and you've been doing this work for so long, this is like, this is in you, this part of your DNA. And I was like, huh. And that actually was around the time that I I went and sat with myself and did kind of my origin story. And I did, I saw the alignment. I saw how, even when I wasn't trying to work in DEI areas or spaces or initiatives, it was there and it was pulling me into it. And even in, in roles that I was hired to do something else, eventually DEI became a part of what I was doing. And I'm like, wow, it has literally been there the whole time. And I, I didn't notice it until that moment that we had that conversation. And I'm like, you know what? She's right. I'm like, I do need to, I, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to make this jump back and I need to see it through. And so I say that to say, sit with your origin story and look for the alignment and the themes. They're there. Your purpose is riddled through everything that you've done. And if you really sit with it, you'll be able to pull it out and see like, wow, this is kind of the theme that has always been present in my life. I think the other thing is in that same session, maybe sit and think about, you know, who who you are currently as a leader and who you want to be. 
thinking about, you know, what qualities are a good leader in your opinion and what quality of what are those qualities you do currently possess, which ones you don't currently possess. And then you now have a way or an outline to figure out how to get there. Mm. So if I don't have this quality and I know I want it, now I need to do some things that are going to put me in a space or in the, uh, give me the opportunity to develop that skill or that quality so that I do have it. And so you have an outline of where you're going. I think anything, any, anything that you're doing in life, you need an outline. Uh, otherwise, you can be turning in circles for That's years right. <laughs> and not even realize it. And then you feel stagnant and you feel like you don't know your purpose and you don't know your worth and your in, the inner saboteur is there and present. Yep. So the outline, you know, is so important. Yeah, those guideposts. That resonates so much. That's wonderful that we had that conversation because it's so easy to disconnect from yes. that thread, that theme, that, you know, connections in our life in the midst of the madness, in the midst of the toxicity or the politics or the all this navigation, the journey gets blurry. And so I appreciate you uplifting that experience and encouraging others to think about that origin because yeah. it's there and it is important and we need to lead from there. So what is your biggest ambition for this year? This will be my last question. What is up for Kevin this year? What are you <laughs> doing? What are you thinking about? What What's up for you? I took on a lot this year and there are moments that I've had this year where I'm like, I took on too much. <laughs> but I'm I'm actually happy with what I've taken on. Just to give you you know some idea, I I started a graduate program, a master's program in January. It's a master's in human resources management, and so a lot of what I'm experiencing on the day to day at work, I've been able to utilize and use some of the tools I'm learning in my master's program directly in my work environment daily, and so it has been. It has been a challenge, uh, I will say, because just a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of writing, a lot of reading. And so time management has probably been been the hardest adjustment for me. But the the amount of stuff that I'm able to pull from it and use in the environment that I work in and in my leadership position has, I mean, it's just been amazing. I can't even say enough about it. So it is, it is a decision that I'm really glad that I made. The other, I'm also the chair of the Black Employee Resource Group within Viterbi. And so that has been an ambitious endeavor <laughs> on top of my full-time job that, you know, is, yeah. is taking me in many different directions. So I kind of have a lot on my plate this year, but I'm also someone that does my best work when I have a lot on my plate. I'm able to focus. And so, you know, I, I feel like it's been a good year, tiring at times, but a good year um, so far. And so I think those are just my biggest ambitions. You know, with the Employee Resource Group, we've been on a lot of programs um, and we have, we do a lot of community programs with the larger Viterbi community as well. You know, and just talking about who African-Americans are and what our story is and how that may show up in the workplace. And, you know, and really just in some ways educating in other ways is creating that safe space for employees to kind of come and just be. And so that's been, been really good. And then the master's program so far, I have straight A's. I've completed a couple of programs. I've gotten, I mean, a couple of my classes, I've gotten A's in, in them already. And so Amazing. that's, that's the other goal is to push through with all A's. 
I love it. You're killing it, Kevin. You're killing it. You're doing it. I am so, you know, appreciative and thankful that we crossed paths a long time ago because I know this leadership journey is going to, we're going to stay connected through this because I've learned so much from you. And I really appreciate you sharing your nuggets more broadly with the world because everyone should benefit. How can folks connect with you afterwards? Sure. You know, I'm an email guy. I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn or you can just email me. My email is khenry, K-H-E-N-R-Y at usc.edu. And yeah, I'd love to connect with with anyone listening. Um, We can have more conversations and keep the conversation going. So shoot me an email or add me on LinkedIn and yeah, we can keep talking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you for everything you bring to the world. And I am so excited we had this conversation. Me too. Me too. It has been great. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter.